Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we begin our series on what it means to be rich. Our starting point is a distinction between getting rich and being rich. As a case study, we look at the wealth of America. How did this British outpost become the richest country in the world? At the founding of America as we know it, the Declaration of Independence was a necessary communication to Europe. It let them know we were going to try to do things differently. These early American communications help set the stage for the way we view wealth and riches in our modern world. I'm starting a new series today called How to Be Rich. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of effort trying to get rich. And that's a pretty fruitless uh, task. But the scripture tells us a lot about how to be rich. Because riches is something God uh, bestows on us uh, as a a gift for our our, uh, acceptance. And what we typically call getting rich has to do with material accumulations, which, if understood correctly from the scripture... Is, is either a curse or a byproduct of already being rich. So as an introduction to today, since it's July, July 4th weekend, I'm going to talk some about why America is so economically prosperous. And we have a lot of spiritual poverty, but we also had a lot of, have a lot of spiritual wealth. And if you've spent time in other countries like I have, you can see that when wealth comes to uh, many other countries, it brings death and devastation. Uh, poor Africa. You know, we've, our, our uh, church has done a lot of work in Africa. Every time they discover a new diamond mine or a new copper mine or something, there's a civil war because they have to fight over which big man controls it. And... Uh, you know, it's, it's really sad since you get to know the heart of the African people and they're such gentle and, and, uh, and happy spirits until a little money shows up and then it all just breaks down. So why is it that America has this uh, amazing ability, really comparatively, to handle material wealth without it destroying us to the extent it does other places in the world? And why do we have so much? Just as a overall context, you can go to a website called uh, something like uh, globalrichlist.com and you can put in your investment wealth or your income and it'll tell you how you rank in the world. If you go in and put in your investments are $50 billion, it'll give you this little thing that says, Warren, is that you? (laughs) If not, try again. But if you put in $31,000 as your income, which is below the average income for uh, American workers, if you put in $31,000 a year of income, do you know where you'll rank in the world's wealthiest people? Can you guess? 5% is a good guess. Top 1%. You're in the top 1% at $31,000 a year. If you put in a poverty amount, like poverty line for family of four is 23850 a year, poverty. 
if you're an American and you're in poverty, you're in the top 3% wealthiest people in the world. And if you put in poverty line for a family of one, which is $11,670 a year, you're still the top 15% in the world. Okay, so this top one percent movement of you know they're the top one percent's too wealthy. If you apply that to America, and it's everybody, just about <laughs> it's just a handful of people that don't fit. Well, how did it get that way, and why is it so much? It's it's fairly popular to say, well, America's blessed with uh, natural resources, which it is. There's no doubt it's blessed with natural resources more so than other countries. No, not really. One of the most astonishing things to me when I first went to Africa was the immense natural resource wealth around me. Now, growing up in Texas, I love Texas, but it is a paltry, nasty place compared to Africa from a natural resource standpoint. It is unbelievable how wealthy that place is. They don't have economic development. And why? Why is that? Well, it's because our system of governance is what God gave to Israel to bless them. And it's called self-governance. That's our system of governance is called self-governance. And uh, we are the only large-scale implement, Im implemented example of uh, self-governance ever in the history of the world. There's a couple of small-scale implementations. Switzerland is a self-governing nation. And in terms of natural resources, Switzerland, way at the bottom of the list, it's basically just one big mountain canyon. They don't have nothing. If you go, they, basically the one thing they have is these big mountains so people will leave them alone. And it's a nation of badgers. You can, they have their tunnels dynamited so that they can shut them off quickly. Uh, Hitler didn't invade. They weren't neutral so much as they were just not worth going and getting. Hitler determined he would lose like three divisions and have to fight hand-to-hand, -hand, valley to valley to get them, and they, just, they weren't strategically important. Uh, but they've, they've been fairly well self-governing since the 1100s when William Tell happened and they became a, a democracy. And they're one of the wealthiest nations in the world, even though they have any natural resources. Switzerland is where the Reformation was born. John Calvin was in Geneva, which is Swiss. Zwingli was in uh, Zurich. Well, the self-governance came to America, and, and part of what I'd like to do today is talk about American history and how it's, how it's, it's different. It's exceptional. American exceptionalism, exception means different than everybody else. You can be exceptionally bad. You can be exceptionally good. Exceptional just means different. And in our case, the thing that makes us really exceptional is this governance structure. We are so used to it, we don't even know it's different. It's all we've ever known. If you go to another country and spend much time there, you will think that they are weird. Because you'll be at a restaurant and the tables need to be arranged and you'll get up with the, your friends and just rearrange everything and they will think you're nuts because you didn't go get the authority and ask for permission and, you know, petition and 
or you, you've risked uh, offending somebody or something like that. We do this kind of stuff all the time. The rest of the world thinks we're unbelievably arrogant because when we see a problem, we just get together and fix it. This is because we're self-governing. We're exceptional. Well, I want to I give you some historical examples to back my point. And then I want to give you the biblical basis for this. And, and I want to show you that God actually implemented this system of governance as the ideal when he founded Israel. So first, let me tell you a few historical stories. And I'm, I'm going to do some reading to you. I hope I can read sufficiently where it's, uh, where it's interesting to you. Let me tell you the story of Peter Muhlenberg. Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor and he was uh, also a general in the Revolutionary uh, Army. Well, Peter Muhlenberg, if you go to the U.S. Capitol, his statue's there. He's in Statuary Hall. Each state gets two statues in the U.S. Capitol, and he's there for the state of Pennsylvania. And the event that's depicted in his statue happened from the pulpit. And he gave a sermon from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And he preached, according to the story, he preached and says, To everything there's a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck what's planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to dance. Time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, time to refrain from embracing, time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, time to throw away, a time to tear, time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, time of war, and time of peace. And he took off his robe, and underneath he had his Continental Army uniform. And he said, and this is a time for war. He marched to the back of the room. He said, who's going to join me to fight? And he recruited 300 guys that formed the nucleus of that company. He was at the Battle of Yorktown. He was at Valley Forge with George Washington. They were called the Black Robe Brigade, these preachers of liberty against tyranny. His brother, Peter Muhlenberg's brother, was really against him joining the Continental Army until the British burned his church down in front of him. And then he changed his mind (laughs) and said, I think you ought to go. Well, so there was this connection between what they saw as their religious duty and what they saw as their patriotic duty. In fact, they were inseparable in the minds of the early American patriots. Let me give you another story that makes the same point and really cements this idea of self-governance. This is from the remarks before the Sons of the American Revolution, April 19th, 1894. April 19th was an important day in American history because the Battle of Concord shot her around the world was fired on April 19, 1775. 
So Concord, Massachusetts is where one of the two big battles was fought, the lawn at Lexington and then Concord just a few miles down the road. And a fellow named uh, uh, Mellon Chamberlain, who was a school teacher and a historian, was giving this speech to the citizens of Concord. And he's at the church in Concord where the Continental Congress had actually met at one point. And he says, citizens of Concord, this is your shrine. He's talking about this church. It ought to be the shrine of a nation. Invoke it for divine protection from lightning and tempest. Provide for it protection from fire and wasting tooth of time because because it had so much significance. He's talking to the citizens of Concord about this event, the shot heard around the world, the the, uh, Battle of Concord. And then he says, of the events of April 1775, I need say, but little, they've passed into history. Every year they're recounted in our public journals. Well, at least that was the case (laughs) in remarks in 1894. They're household words. My purpose is not to rehearse them, but to ask what these events meant for the colonists at the time, what they've meant since and what they may mean for future ages. On the first question, I have some direct authentic intelligence from an actor in those scenes. When the action at Lexington on the morning of the 19th was known at Danvers, another town in Massachusetts, the Minutemen there, under the lead of Captain Gideon Foster, made that memorable march, or run rather, of 16 miles in four hours, and struck Percy's flying column at West Cambridge. Brave but incautious in flanking the redcoats, they were flanked themselves and badly pinched, leaving seven dead, two wounded, and one missing. Among those who escaped was Levi Preston, afterwards known as Captain Levi Preston. When I, Mellon Chamberlain says, was about 21, and Captain Preston about 91, I interviewed him as to what he did and thought 67 years before on April 19th, 1775. So Levi Preston was 24 when he went to the Battle of Concord. And now, 52 years later, I make my report. A little belated, perhaps, but not too late, I trust, for the morning papers. I guess some things don't change. At that time, of course, I knew all about the American Revolution, far more than I know now. (laughs) And now, if I know truly anything, it's chiefly owing to what I've since forgotten of the histories of that event then popular. In other words, he's saying what is popularly taught about the American Revolution was already wrong in 1894, and he's about to correct the record. With an assurance passing even that of the modern interviewer, if that were possible, I began. Captain Preston, why did you go to the Concord fight? the 19th of April, 1775. The old man bowed beneath the weight of years, raised himself upright and turning to me said, what, what, why, why did I go? (laughs) Yes, I replied. My histories tell me that you men of the revolution took up arms against intolerable impressions, oppressions. What were they? Oppressions? I didn't feel any. What? Were you not oppressed by the Stamp Act? I never saw one of those stamps. Always understood Governor Bernard put them in Castle William. I'm certain I never paid a penny for any of them. Well, what about then the tea tax? Tea tax? Never drank a drop of this stuff. 
The boys threw it all overboard. Well, then I suppose you've been reading Harrington or Sidney or Locke about the eternal principles of liberty. Never heard of them. We read only the Bible, the Catechism, what Psalms and Hymns and the Almanac. Well, what then was the matter? What did you mean going to fight? Young man, what we meant going for those red coats was this. We had always governed ourselves, and we always meant to, and they meant we shouldn't. And that gentleman, this is Neville Chamberlain again, Mellon Chamberlain, Mellon Chamberlain. And that gentleman is the ultimate philosophy of the American Revolution. It correctly assigns its underlying cause. It explains and accounts for the actions of the patriotic party. Doubtless there were subsidiary causes affecting localities and interests, especially on the seacoast and in larger commercial towns, but the yeomanry of the interior felt none of those grievances. And yet, from Maine to Georgia, they were among the first to resist the British pretensions. Thomas Paine once said something like this, the British ministry were too jealous of the colonists to govern them justly, too ignorant to govern them well, and too far away to govern them at all. That puts the matter very neatly. But Levi Preston, the Danvers yeoman, put it far better. For no other words known to me ever expressed the actual condition of affairs with more historic truth or more tersely. For the attitude of the colonists was not of slaves seeking liberty, but of free men, free men for five generations resisting political servitude. You see... When the pilgrims uh, came across and put the Mayflower compact down, they were reiterating uh, what had happened in uh, England hundreds of years before with the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta only applied to the wealthy landowners. It It was a statement that the law is above the king for wealthy landowners. It didn't apply to everyone in general. And in America, there was no land-owning monopoly. And so basically, all you had to do to own land is go get some. And it broke that monopoly. So in America, they've been ruling themselves since for five generations, 200 years already. The American Revolution was not a revolution per se. It was actually a defensive action to prevent an invasion. Resisting political servitude. And as Mr. Webster, who must often have conversed with his father on the subject, once said with his usual historical accuracy and a felicity all his own, quote, while while actual suffering was yet afar off, they went to war against a preamble. They fought seven years against a declaration. The preamble was that of the Stamp Act, and it said this, Whereas it is necessary to raise a revenue from the colonies for their defense, the declaration was, that the power of parliament over the colonies extends to all cases, whatever. Samuel Adams properly understood this and coined the phrase taxation without representation, which the the colonists properly interpreted as, if we allow this to happen, we're now slaves. We're not self-governing any longer. Few events in the world's history have been more tremendous consequence than those of the 19th of April, 1775. And nothing but a completed cycle in the world's history will reveal their full significance. 
And now here we are, 115 years later, 120 years later, still in that cycle. It was no new thing to overthrow dynasties or disrupt empires. It was no new thing to make conquests or repel invasions. But the battlefields on which the condition of any considerable part of the human race has been permanently changed are few. And fewer still on those which has been instituted a new principle of government, apparently destined to affect the whole human race. Thermopylae, the 300 uh, Greeks that staved off the Persians for a few days, Thermopylae saved for a time the civilization of Greece. But it did not advance the civilization of the world. Waterloo, where Napoleon fell, merely restored the old status of Europe. The wars of the great English Revolution did not bring into the British Constitution true representative government. That came two centuries later with the Reform Bill of 1832, really in response to the American experience. But the Concord fight, as Levi Preston substantially said, preserved, if it did not inaugurate, what Webster called a government of the people, for the people, and accountable to the people. The 19th of April, 1775, was indeed notable in the progress of national autonomy and representative government. Other days come and go. The sun rises and hastens to its setting. But on the 19th of April, no second born will rise. Its sun, once risen, never set. It still rides high and clear. Its prescribed arc is not through the visible heavens, but over the ages. A mile away from us is the North Bridge. He's, again, speaking in Concord. We are are familiar with the scene and the incidents which make it memorable. We see Major Buttrick with his little band of farmers moving down to dislodge Captain Laurie's company. We see Isaac Davis and Abner Hosmer fall. We hear Major Buttrick exclaim, Fire, fellow soldiers, for God's sake, fire! That was the fight at Concord Bridge. That was the shot heard around the world. The shot that will resound through the ages, forever reverberate in the air, forever quicken the pulses of the human race. So, Mellon Chamberlain, through Levi Preston, helps us understand that what is a fairly popular narrative about the American Revolution is totally false. And that is this, that some guys, some genius fellows, snuck away from their ignorant countrymen and went to Philadelphia. And there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, they concocted something brand new no one had ever thought of. And they came out and said, look, We want to have a free nation. And the Americans said, what a brilliant idea. We will follow you wherever you go. And America was born. And that's just totally false. In fact, the leaders in Philadelphia were great leaders, but they were great leaders because they were opportunistic enough to sniff where everything was going. In 1825, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter. And in the letter, he says, the Declaration of Independence did not express anything new or unknown to the Americans. It was, in fact, intended for the audience of the Europeans to explain to them what was happening over here. Because Europe, 
was a serfdom culture. You had landowners, and they owned the land, and you had serfs, and they belonged to the land. They had rights. The rights ran with the land. And slavery and despotism was the worldwide governance structure. And no one would understand what's happening in in America without the Declaration of Independence. But there were about a hundred declarations of independence before that one. Towns, states, fire departments, fire associations, because this was in the heart of the American people. We've governed ourselves for five generations and we don't now want to change and be slaves. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.